trauma and accidents still kill a lot of children. And in fact, it, in adolescence, death by gun is, is in the top five causes of death, believe it or not. That's Dr. Mark Del Picaro, Chief Medical Officer with Seattle Children's. I spoke with Dr. Picaro about a wide range of issues regarding children's health care and what Children's is doing to eradicate childhood diseases. Now, Seattle's Children's is a leader in the United States and the world for seeking and finding cures that face children every day. And as you can hear from the introduction, it's not all about treating ailments through surgery and recovery but coming to grips with issues that go far beyond the scope of curing infectious diseases, like access to guns in households. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Also joining us today will be Jonathan Martin, who has been covering the homeless crisis in the Puget Sound region for a number of years for the Seattle Times. All of us have some opinion about homelessness, And no doubt most of us have very strong opinions on how to solve it. I thought it was time to talk to someone who has been covering this issue for a long time and get his thoughts on how we may begin to make a dent in this serious crisis. Even more critical, if you are one of the people living in the tents. Former Seattle Mariners President and Chief Executive Officer John Ellis was my guest on Profiles of Experience over 20 years ago. I'm going to replay that interview today. John talks about the recent player strike that occurred in 1994. Well, not so recent now, but it just had occurred then. And the fact that the stadium, which would become Safeco Field, was given the green light just a short time before the interview and then some of the other issues facing baseball then. My commentary today is on the importance of organization. In real estate, the motto is location, location, location. In business, it's about organization, organization, organization. Back with my interview with Jonathan Martin in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Jonathan Martin has joined me, and he is the editor of the Seattle Times Project Homeless. Since joining the Times in 2002, he has covered human services, politics, and marijuana, and was on the Times editorial board, a University of Washington graduate and Knight Wallace Fellow at the University of Michigan. Jonathan lives in Seattle with his wife and two children. We all look around the area and see homelessness practically everywhere. I've talked to many people about this, and we all have opinions as to how we would solve this problem. I have my opinion, and I know that you have yours. But I wanted to talk to someone who has been really doing a deep dive into this issue for many years, and again, that's Jonathan Martin. 
I guess basically what I really wanted to know are what are some of the reasons that have brought us to where we are right now? A lot of it is housing costs and a lot of it is poor social services. Is Seattle worse than most of the country? Yes. Seattle has um, a homelessness problem that is in the top five nationally. Um, what is unusual um, about the West Coast cities of Los Angeles and um, Seattle and San Francisco to a certain extent, but less so, certainly San Jose now, Sacramento, is that there's most of the people that are, that are homeless are outside. Uh, New York and uh, Washington, D.C. have large homeless populations, but they have laws that require shelter to be given. So they have gigantic shelter systems uh, where people are inside. So Seattle's is, um, homeless numbers are worse than most other cities. And then compounding that, most of the people, an unusual number of people in a national context, are living outside in, in tents. What city or cities do you think are handling this problem in the best way? There's a bunch of different reasons, drivers of homelessness. Um, so I don't think that there's any one city that is doing like one thing all great. Uh, we've seen cities that have had success in reducing certain populations of homelessness. People, for example, you know, um, cities in Louisiana that have really driven down their numbers of veterans who are homeless. Um, you know, Utah had some success for a while of driving down the numbers of chronically homeless people. Uh, and one of, the secret, one of the secrets seems to be a level of coordination uh, among the different entities that are providing services. Seattle has a fairly fractured model that is uh, where their services and funding are spread among various, uh, several different agencies, and there's not a single person in charge. So you, that's one of the commonalities you see in you know, cities that are doing, driving down certain portions of the homelessness population. There's a real coordination level. What are a few other things that you think that Seattle could do to bring down the number? There's no shortage of, of, of studies that are sitting on shelves with great ideas on them. Um, you know, one of them is uh, treatment on demand, um, immediate, um, timely, comprehensive treatment for um, particularly for opioids, um, but for a whole range of drugs. We do that on a little bit, not a lot. There's been a world shortages of like sh detox beds and that kind of thing. We haven't gotten serious about it. And that again goes to the fracturedness of it. State funds most of it. King County runs some of it. Seattle doesn't have any role with it. And so there's not a single person in charge of that part of it. Um, I think that um, certainly um, they could trying to address building affordable housing in a way that's cheaper. There's a lot of discussions about that right now. We know that there's a shortage of people seeking to leave the tent camps. If they want to leave tent camps, they want to get into shelter, and they want to go someplace. There's a real shortage of uh, places that are subsidized and affordable for them to live. Um, we have a model also that is very expensive at building long-term housing. There's a lot of discussion right now about using modular housing or container housing, that kind of thing, to bring that down. Other cities are doing that. Vancouver, B.C. is doing that in a big way. Seattle has a single project that it's sort of monkeying around with. So those are a couple of things I think that can make a difference. One thing that I felt that uh, Ed Murray did very well in the beginning of his administration with the minimum wage, mm -hmm. he brought all the stakeholders together mm -hmm. around a table and said, solve this thing or let's figure right. this thing out. And uh, among labor groups, business, and 
it seemed to work. I mean, they, he said, you know, the white smoke came out. This is how we're going to do it. And it, right. and it happened. Is that too simple for something like this? Well, getting the negotiators for something like the minimum wage together is simpler. There's really a couple of key constituencies, people that are paying the wage and the union folks that are arguing for the wage. Um, with homelessness, you have you have a constituency that's very interested in uh, mental health treatment and chemical dependency treatment and affordable housing providers, people that are concerned about people being homeless because of criminal justice involvement. Bringing together all of those people together to unite around like a common theme it doesn't seem possible to me. Um, and it's, it certainly has not been practical or proven. We just had a one this one-table initiative called by Jenny Durkin and Dow Constantine and the mayor of Auburn that didn't really produce anything. And it was diffuse. It was kind of squishy. Um, so I think that if there is going to be progress on an area, it feels to me like there has to be a real prioritization of which problem within the homelessness system we're going to solve. I, I think that um, there's a, the most energy right now feels to me around family homelessness. Paul Allen, I mean, uh, sorry, Jeff Bezos, uh, just gave a billion dollars yesterday um, to help solve family homelessness. Um, there's a lot of corporate, you know, corporate philanthropic interest in solving that. So if you're going to make real progress, I think that that might be one place that if there was a concerted, directed, coordinated push, bringing together all, all, the, all the parties, um, that's possible. Are you optimistic we can, let's say, not solve the problem, but make a major dent in it going forward, let's say, the next five to ten years? I love Seattle. I've lived here for most of the last three decades, third-generation Seattleite, and I'm really worried. I don't see either the will um, or the level of cooperation that would be necessary to put a serious dent in this. And you couple that with the fact that Seattle has won the global tech lottery um, and is a city that is getting massively wealthy um, but in, unaffordable for people that are not software engineers. So I'm, I'm worried. That's Jonathan Martin, editor of the Seattle Times Project Homeless. Listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. My commentary today is on organization, the real importance of being organized and how that helps you succeed in business. It is one of my questions I ask on the self-employment quiz. Are you organized? In real estate, the motto is location, location, location. In business, it's organization, organization, organization. Time is your most precious commodity. The best use of your time should be spent selling your product or service. No one can do that like you. It is your vision. Don't abdicate that to someone else. Contract out repetitive functions like bookkeeping. Also, think about this. Saving two hours commute time a day will save you one full year of productivity in approximately 
10 years. Organization or lack of organization often makes the difference between success and failure in the business. Success in business is all about developing systems that make doing your job at various levels easier and more profitable with each passing day. And the more organized you are, the faster and easier it will be to manage your business and make money. Being organized instills a sense of confidence in your clients and potential clients. There used to be and I say used to be, a print shop across the street from my office. I used to walk into the print shop and see scattered files all over the place, discs in disarray. It didn't really instill a lot of confidence that I would want to leave a big print project with them. And I didn't. I walked out never to return. That print shop no longer exists, and I'm not surprised. Bottom line, always be thinking of ways of making your company more organized, and that will make it much more efficient, and also save you a lot of money. And think about this, when you're on Facebook reading about flying monkeys in Australia or looking at some friend of yours or distant acquaintance on a European vacation going down the Rhine River waving at you, what did you learn from that? You really must discern how you spend your time. This is really extremely important to your overall success. Stay focused and stay organized. Our guest this morning on U.S. West Profiles of Experience is Mr. John Ellis, Chief Executive Officer of the Seattle Mariners for the past six years. Mr. Ellis is a lifelong resident of the Puget Sound region and has made significant contributions in enhancing the quality of life in this region. Mr. Ellis, uh, could you tell us, do you think uh, the major hurdles have been overcome in terms of future of baseball in Seattle? Who knows what the next one will be, but we've certainly come a very long way, and I, I think the stadium hurdles are essentially over. We have an appeal to go through, and we have a stadium to build, but I think most of the, the big ones are gone. Do you think uh, the Seattle Mariners, what do you think about the ball team and, and what its prospects are for this year? Well, everybody's optimistic in the spring, and, and we're as optimistic as anyone. I think the prospects are, are super. Uh, what we need to do is keep them away from the doctor. Last year, you know, we started out with a whale of a team and had a lot of people hurt. If we could stay well, we should definitely be a contender. What do you think in general the state of Major League Baseball is in now on the big scope across the country, where it's headed? Where do you see, like, I guess the question would be Major League Baseball in five years from now, maybe ten years from now? Yeah, I think it's on its way back pretty clearly. The, the strike really hurt. Uh, it hurt with the fans. It hurt with relationships between players and teams. It, it was a mess. And last year was kind of uh, uh, the first year of rebirth. The uh, change of the championship season has really helped the additional playoffs. And now I just sense enthusiasm throughout the country. I think you're going to see the game bigger and better than ever. And, and the other piece is that baseball is now going to reach out and try to grow internationally as well. And that's important. How about Seattle uh, making headroads into Japan? I know we have, but let's say television and things and, and actually the prospects of going there next year and playing some games. Yeah, remember, Japan has its own very good league. So it's not as if we would go in and superimpose ourselves on them. Uh, but uh, we're looking at working relationships with Japanese baseball teams, for example. You might be interested that one of the most popular American players in Japan is Ken Griffey Jr. So we, we feel we have an affinity, and, and we're going to certainly work at that. John Ellis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You'll notice during the interview with John Ellis that the name 
Ken Griffey Jr. was mentioned as the star of baseball in Japan, meaning that Ichiro, as a baseball player, was an unknown individual to Seattle. But in a couple of years, that was about to change. That's it for sports. Dr. Mark Del Picaro, Chief Medical Officer with Seattle Children's, is on the line. His specialty is pediatric care. He also works on emergency medicine, where he says he gets to play with the kids, treat their broken bones, close their lacerations, and relieve a family's concern or help shepherd them through a difficult health crisis. What's the difference between treating and researching children's diseases as opposed to adult diseases, and how did he decide to go into pediatric care? The one that's certainly the most visible in our system right now is the work that's being done with our cancer immunotherapy program. There are other places in the world doing it. I think we're definitely in the lead in that, and we certainly have more trials open than I think other any other place. I can remember vividly as a first-year intern having to start an IV in a, in a cancer child who's going through chemotherapy. Essentially, cancer treatment now is giving people enough poison to kill any growing cell in their body and hope that they survive, and we wipe out the cancer without killing them. And we've been doing a version of that for decades. It, it hasn't really fundamentally shifted. We've gotten, you know, newer drugs, and they've certainly targeted things in a, in a better way, and the survival has gone up. To be on the cusp of where we're using people's cells and, and um, teaching them how to attack their own cancer cells, and potentially being able to put people in remission, either long-term or cure them, without going through that, to me, is like a, a major fundamental shift. I think the closest thing I would say that analogous to that, that we have done amazing work on, and unfortunately there's a backslide right now, is in vaccines. When I was a resident, we would take care of kids with horrible cases of meningitis and sepsis. Do you know what I mean by those two words? Meningitis, I'm familiar with, but was it septus? Sepsis. Yeah, sepsis. it's where you get it. It's same idea. It's overwhelming bacterial infection in your bloodstream, and it just destroys all your organs, and you die of that. Um, versus meningitis, which is where the infection is heaviest located in your in your brain and spinal canal, and, and it. yes, it kills you that way. And mm -hmm. you know, I saw kids die of those things like all the time when I was a resident. And now it's incredibly rare. Like you just don't see it. And in fact, some diseases that I had to take care of as a kid, you know, modern people don't, they have no clue what that is. There seems to be an anti-vaccine sentiment in some quarters of this country that's growing. And I'm certainly concerned about that. What's your thoughts about that? People can get out on any kind of website or FaceTime or whatever, and they they make themselves an expert, and they convince other people that they know something. Once people convince themselves of something 
it becomes almost like a religious belief, and then you can't argue them out of it with facts. Like, facts become meaningless at that point. And the number of people that are not vaccinating is just astounding. Could we see something of a resurgence of some disease that will come back in a big way that we thought we eradicated because of this um, kind of attitude? Well, we've already seen quite a few measles and whooping coughs or pertussis outbreaks in this country and locally in in Washington state. Luckily, they're still a, a minority. What's saving them is the fact that almost everybody still does it. Because let's just say we reach some tipping point, and I don't, you know, I would have to talk to the CDC or something, find out what that is. If there's enough people immunized, but the people that are not immunizing are being saved by the fact that there's not enough germs around to infect their kids. If we drop below a certain level with standard vaccines and their kids started dying of these things or they ended up in our ICUs because of some of those illnesses, that's what happens. Believe me, they would change their belief. <laughs> right. But that's and, what it's going to take. Hopefully we don't hit that tipping point. But if we do, that's what it's going to take to get us back on center, I suppose. Yeah. And I can tell you, it has helped move some states a little bit more to not allowing completely free pr- personal exemption from sending their kids to school. It takes a big thing for people to do that. There was a big measles outbreak, if you remember, a year or two ago related to Disneyland visit. Yes, and that helped. That. And that actually helped California governments to tighten up the personal exemption rules. Vaccines and clean water have done more to extend the life of people than almost anything we've ever done. The next one is food. So when we say, what are we, what are we doing, though, that's sort of unique in, the, in our end of the woods, I would say it's cancer immunotherapy. I would also say that one of our great successes and secondary challenges is now, because of a lot of things we've done, Kids with different kinds of either congenital or other things that used to not allow them to survive now live, you know, well into their teens, 20s, 30s, and even beyond. Kids with cystic fibrosis, for instance, and things like that. And my belief is probably maybe not in my lifetime, but in in some point, they'll be able to find things like kids with diabetes and kids with cystic fibrosis and some other things, and they'll figure out, oh, you have this specific gene defect. I think within, you know, not too long, there'll be a number of those that they'll say, oh, you're missing this specific gene sequence, or you have this specific gene that's not working correctly. And gene therapy to fix those things has already started in some illnesses, and I think that will progress a lot. Right. And isn't that my limited knowledge in this field, but what I read really gene therapy is the key to eradicating diseases. Otherwise, you're just treating it, as you said, poison treating poison. I think for many diseases, that is true. There are some things, however, that are not that way. There are still, unfortunately, trauma and accidents still kill a lot of children. And in fact, in adolescence, death by gun is is in the top five causes of death, believe it or not. We don't approach it in any way, shape, or form like that because of the whole political issue. Certainly. It is, in, in, in medicine, this is one of the biggest views of a public health emergency. I guarantee you, 
if children were dying of any other illness at the rate they die of gun violence, that society would be totally on top of getting rid of it. A lot of the teenagers that die from this die from self-inflicted, from suicide. Isn't like 60% of people with guns die of suicide? That's the number one yeah. cause. And, and a huge portion of that are also elderly people. What advantages do adults have over children in receiving quality health care? Whether Medicare is good or bad, the good thing about it is, is that all adults over age 65 have some level of uniform health care coverage. So it doesn't matter whether you live in rural Wyoming or New York City or you know Alabama or whatever. Kids, however, Medicaid rules and funding vary wildly across states and their access to health care is wildly different across places. And again, I say the thing that, well, if you want a healthy adult, you need a healthy kid. That's Dr. Mark Del Vaccaro, Seattle Children's Chief Medical Officer. I certainly learned a lot in this interview. I hope you did too. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. I would like to thank Dr. Mark Del Picaro, Jonathan Martin, and John Ellis from an interview I had with them 20 years ago for all of them sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Next week, Dr. Eric Larson, clinical professor with the University of Washington School of Public Health, will talk about ways in which we can all age better and perhaps techniques that we can use to delay memory challenges and dementia. He wrote a book called Enlightened Aging, Building Resilience for a Long and Active Life. If you want to listen to any previous show from last year, you can Google KKNW and then click through to archives. At the bottom of that page, you can click on to Voices of Experience. Then you click on to that and you will come to my page and click on to Archive Shows, Voices of Experience, and you can listen to any show again for the last year and a half. You can listen to past interviews that include former host of NPR's All Things Considered, Robert Siegel. Another couple of shows I did on homelessness in addition to the one today, which included a visit to the Bread of Life Mission in Seattle Pioneer Square, and Chicken Soup for the sole author and entrepreneur, Mark Victor Hansen. He had incredible suggestions about how to run a business. It's pretty amazing. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience, you can call me at 206-459-5536. That's 206-459-5536. Let me know about topics that you would like to have explored on this program, and I'll see if I can make that happen. Or if you'd like to leave a message, you can dial 425-653-1166, and I will get that on the air. Give your opinion on homelessness or anything we talked about today or a previous show. That's 425-653-1166. Have a great rest of the week.